When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When comes the Powell pivot? Welcome to the Real, Real, Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Thursday, November 10th, 2022. I am Weston Nakamura, uh, Real Vision's global markets editor based in Tokyo. And I'm joined today with a very special guest, Mr. Michael Howell. He's the CEO and founder of Cross Border Capital. Uh, but before we get started, we also have uh, Andreas Steno Larson who I have interrupted in his vacation in paradise um, to just walk us through CPI and the market price action. So, uh, Andreas, uh, you look slightly warmer than you are uh, usually when I talk to you, but thanks for joining us. How are you, man? I'm good, thank you. Um, it's a bit warmer than uh, usual for me down here at Cayman, but um, I'm enjoying it anyway. <laughs> uh, I would hope so. Um, so, Look, we had um, CPI come out today and, uh, you know, looks like uh, both on headline, not that anyone really cares about headline anymore, but as core as well, uh, has basically come in below uh, consensus. And we see a massive cross-asset, um, you know, move. And so can you just walk us through uh, both of those? Maybe let's uh, go through the uh, the CPI sort of uh, figures themselves. Is there anything that popped out at you? Um, and anything that we can kind of uh, extrapolate from in terms of monetary policy out of the out of the U.S. Uh, what, what a rally we have across right about everything today. Uh, and I guess the trigger is this CPI report, obviously. If, if we look at the details, um, I've been saying for quite a while that we should expect the prices of goods, so physical goods, to either disinflate or outright drop in the coming quarter or two. Uh, and I think if we look a bit beneath the surface of this core CPI print at 6.3%, that um, the goods component is the exact reason why we have a surprise to the downside of expectations for inflation. Um, the monthly number is uh, around 0.27, uh, so month on month growth below 0.3% in the core inflation number. We haven't had such low numbers since summer of uh, 2021. So I guess this is a biggie for the momentum of inflation overall. And I think that's why we have this material response in markets. But let's look at the um, details. I mean, I've been saying that the price of goods needed to drop as a consequence of a reopening of supply chains globally. We have uh, clearly lower freight rates from China to the West now. That's good news for the price of goods in uh, a negative sense. Uh, we have demand destruction ongoing a lot of places around the globe. PMI is below 50 right about everywhere uh, you look. Uh, so I think this is a natural consequence of an economic slowdown globally that we um, see this reaction in goods prices. But if we look at the price of services, um, the trend is actually still intact. Um, 
the most important component of service inflation is the rent of shelter cost. It's up uh, around 0.6% on the month, uh, basically the same kind of trend that we've seen in the shelter cost over the past couple of quarters here, uh, which essentially means that service inflation is still moving up um, on a trend basis while goods inflation is moving in the other direction. So we have this theme of goods disinflation or deflation versus service inflation. And I think when we sort of boil the two trends together, that the, when the dust settles into next year, a new natural level for inflation is probably above 4%. That's at least what my models uh, tell me. And I think in the light of a stabilized level of inflation of above 4%, the Fed's got a lot of work to do still, and we obviously got a lot of Fed members uh, at the wires already. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, just to um, put some context in that, even before the CPI print came out, we had two Fed speakers who were saying, you know, yes, we um, they weren't obviously being dovish by any means, they, but, but they were being cognizant of doing too much or, you know, being aware of potentially breaking something. But... However, we have a job to do, and that is to get inflation down. Um, so I suppose that uh, more rate hikes to just keep coming um, as, as of now, and then it'll just be how long they stay up um, is, is sort of the uh, takeaway from this one reading, right? And, and, and is there anything that we can really take from this one reading? Or because, you know, one reading is certainly not enough, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, I... I mean, let's take a step back and look at what Paul has actually told us in, in the past months. Uh, I think he's been clear that um, he's afraid of repeating the mistakes made in particular in 1974 and 1975. What the Fed did in 1974 was that they made a very swift pivot as inflation uh, turned lower. Um, and the ultimate issue was that they made too swift a pivot to ensure that inflation actually stayed in a disinflationary trend. And ultimately, we got a double top in inflation uh, during that period. It was obviously not only the Fed's fault, uh, but the Fed was part of the problem um, in hindsight. And therefore, Paul has kept reiterating, we will keep at it. Uh, a direct referral to uh, Volker's book, um, keeping at it, uh, basically meaning that interest rates will have to remain higher for longer to ensure that the animal spirits will not resurface as soon as we see these disinflationary trends that we do now. Uh, because I think it's fair to say that the peak is in. I think we will have more downside uh, in inflation in the next quarter or two. But I think the level that we should expect it to stabilize around is, is um, above 4% or maybe uh, even closer to 5% at least if you look at the underlying fundamentals of various price service, et cetera. So the point here is that if these animal spirits resurface, as we see today, NASDAQ running at 7% gains on the day, uh, we see renewed gains in crypto space uh, less than 24 hours after the biggest blow up in the sector ever. Uh, I, I personally think it's, um, it's a crystal clear signal to the Fed that they will have to once again reiterate that if we don't listen to them, then we risk end up ending up in a double top inflation scenario. And therefore, they will have to keep going until we get the message. Listen to us. Do not fight us, uh, essentially, right? Yeah. 
thanks so much, uh, Andreas. And and then just yeah, real, real quick on you know as you said, Nasdaq you know plus seven percent. That that is obviously a massive move. But let's also keep in context, as I said yesterday on the real daily briefing, when you know crypto was blowing up and crypto was um, moving the Nasdaq over the last two days prior to that. We have to keep that in mind as well. A lot of that downside of the last two days was not you know, derived out of equity indices, but rather out of the crypto space. So when you see a 7%, you know, single day move, that is, first of all, that's a lot of that is short covering, yet covering, yet like, yes, there's going to be some new longs in there. Um, but it's also basically kind of getting back into uh, equity markets and moving on their own merit, merit rather than another asset class like crypto uh, as well. So uh, all of that stuff to keep in context. Uh, Andreas, Go uh, keep working on your tan or whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, thank you for joining us and for your insights as always, uh, and enjoy yourself. My pleasure. Uh, so, Mr. Howell, um, let me just first ask you uh, this, because this is a pretty sizable move intraday. And I know that you're not very, you know, you're not like an intraday trader or anything like that, but any takeaways from either the, the CPI print in and of itself uh, and or the market response? Um, or the possible policy uh, implications? Well, I think the market response is understandable because everybody has been spooked by inflation. But I think you just got to listen to what Andreas just said. Inflation is coming down. There's no question about that. Um, uh, I would suspect that by the middle of next year, it'll be far, far lesser a problem than people originally anticipated. Uh, but the reality is, is that the market has probably overreacted to this. The Federal Reserve still means business. Uh, the adage that you've got to listen to again and again is don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed, don't, don't fight the People's Bank of China, don't fight the BOJ, don't fight uh, the ECB. Central banks mean business. They are in charge again in a way that they haven't been for decades. And that's what we've got to pay attention to. Uh, yes, indeed. And speaking of which, um, let's talk about cross-border capital and sort of your process and your approach. So I've been following you for some time, um, but I'm going to completely butcher uh, explaining uh, your sort of uh, approach and, and how you analyze markets and, you know, sort of global market behavior and, and capital flows. Uh, so if you want to just give kind of like that, like an overview or a really, really quick overview for the audience uh, as to how you uh, approach markets and, and analyze them. Sure, with pleasure, Weston. Um, quite simply, money moves markets. Um, it's not money in the real economy that moves financial asset prices. It's money in financial markets. What we do is we spend a lot of time uh, monitoring flows in financial markets. Uh, that's not M1 or M2, uh, as is sort of the conventional monetary aggregates. Those refer much more to uh, retail money that is in banks, high street banks that drive the real economy. If you want to know what's going to happen to inflation and uh, the real economy, take a look at M2. Uh, if you want to know what's going to happen to financial asset prices, don't well, don't bother about M2. Start looking at uh, financial liquidity measures, how much money is sloshing around in financial markets, and that really matters. Uh, what the Federal Reserve and other central banks are doing right now is pulling uh, vast amounts of money out of financial markets. They're making them uh, pretty illiquid, uh, and they're delivering uh, a massive wealth destruction. As of the end of uh, October, Pache, the, the latest rally in markets, but as of the end of October, uh, the central banks had managed to destroy uh, a whopping $29 trillion of wealth so far this year in the world economy. Uh, that uh, now beats uh, the wealth destruction in 2008 in the global financial crisis. Uh, it represents about 25% of world GDP. 
These are significant numbers. And the reality is that that probably too much liquidity has been squeezed out of financial markets. Uh, they've created illiquidity. Uh, the problem is, is they've created a lot of illiquidity in the sovereign debt markets, mm. rather unlike 2008 uh, and earlier crises, the problems, the fundamental problems are not really in the credit markets this time. Uh, you know, there are pockets of problems in real estate or credits, I accept, but it's really in the sovereign markets. And you can see that in uh, a chart that uh, I think you can put up, which is looking at a measure we give of uh, market liquidity, which is based on analyzing the uh, US Treasury market and the US Forex market sp uh, spreads. Uh, what that shows is significant declines in liquidity this year. But for comparison, we compare that with what happened in 2008. And you can see the profile is not dissimilar. But in 2008, there is a, an upleg as the central banks were forced to come back in. And I think that's the thing that we've got to start thinking of right now. Uh, our view is that there is a pivot coming. Uh, that pivot is not because of problems in the real economy. Uh, that is likely because of uh, building problems in financial markets. And if you want evidence of that, listen to what Janet Yellen was saying two or three weeks ago about uh, problems in uh, treasury market liquidity, or more pointedly, look at the alacrity with which the Bank of England jumped back in, uh, reversed its QT, started to do QE once again to save the sovereign debt market in the UK. Uh, this matters for, uh, for central banks and for treasuries. It's a big, big issue. And whatever one may say about the merits or demerits of inflation rising or falling right now, the big issue out there, the elephant in the room, is the fiscal problems uh, that are emerging on the horizon. And I can go into that by all means, if you'd like, but uh, the numbers just do not look good. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Sure. Yeah, let's let's get into that. But um, if I can, so just so I understand, um, I kind of want to break break it up into sort of uh, you know, two two categories, if you will, of um, how how things can break uh, in in the sovereign bond markets. So one could be sort of more fundamentally based, you know, where you have uh essentially i guess what, what would be an orderly sell-off um you know a, a rise in bond yields especially at the long end due to you know investors who are selling their u.s treasury holdings or whatever it may be um because they feel that they are not being compensated adequately for inflation uh and the other one being more of a technical sort of market um dysfunction if you will uh, because of a lack of liquidity um, on both trading liquidity, market liquidity, um, and funding liquidity, as you as you talk about as well, um, and you know the you know the 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 latter being what I would think would happen to the Bank of England and the gilt market, where you have you know sudden one hundred basis point spike in the long end of the gilt curve, for which the Bank of England had to step in and cap um, and perform you know temporary yield curve control. Uh, on, but like, uh, am, do I have that right? Are those, those are two separate sort of things that we're talking about, right? Yeah, I, th I think absolutely right. 
Um, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, the, the first thing to say is that, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of tearing up the textbooks because I think a lot of the textbooks on economics and finance are just completely wrong. Don't but, you, have you know, a PhD, one of the things to. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry? <laughs> Don't you have a PhD as well? So you're I, kind of, I do, yes, but that might give me an, an ability to say that a lot of the stuff is uh, is wanting. Um, uh, and the you know the, the the key point is that if you take just take the U.S. market, forty percent of buyers in the market uh, don't or don't really pay attention to risk and return criteria. What they're doing is they're buying for reasons of of, of, of regulation uh, or prudence or. Uh, because they have to match liabilities or duration or whatever it may be. Uh, risk and return don't really come into that equation. And you can see that very clearly with what happened in the UK gilt market. And, you know, many people speak about the, you know, sort of the death of the 60-40 investment model. In other words, holding 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds. The reality was that, that that model died many years ago. And what you were in practice looking at was a model that was, in fact, uh, started off with 80% in equity and 20% in fixed income. But because of regulation, the 20% in fixed income was leveraged about five times, okay, uh, through, uh, through derivatives. And that's what a lot of pension funds were doing. And what's more, they may have taken 20% out of the 80% equity pot and put that into a liquid assets like private equity. And so when you started to get uh, dislocations uh, in the fixed income markets, particularly in the UK gilt market, the whole thing unraveled very fast and you got this huge illiquidity hit. And consequently, what was happening was because you've got margin calls on the derivatives, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these funds were being forced to sell the only liquid assets they had, which bizarrely were uh, government bonds. And so the whole thing basically uh, ballooned out. Uh, you've got this vicious circle of rising yields and the Bank of England had to step in. Now, you know, that's that's partly, uh, you know, market events, but it's also the technicalities of how these things operate. Uh, the problem is the fundamental problem that world financial markets have is there is a structural shortage of safe assets in the system. Uh, and basically, a lot of funds have to leverage those. And that's what's causing the problem. I mean, just look, I mean, I've, I've said before on my my uh, my occasions on Real Vision, it's it's wonkish to think in these terms. But start looking at the term premium in government bond markets. Uh, the textbooks tell you that term premium, which is what you would normally get as a reward as an investor for holding interest rate risk, is now something you've got to pay to the market. You've got to pay to take interest rate risk. So the further out on the curve you go, in other words, moving from one year to 10 year treasuries, you basically have to pay a premium to the market to hold longer dated debt. Now, that, that's not in the textbooks. They, they, they say that can't happen, but it's happening. And it's been happening for years. And what that's telling us is there's a structural shortage of these instruments in the system. Uh, and that is not good. If you've got such big negative numbers uh, in terms of negative term premium, it's telling you there's something very, very badly wrong. Yeah, indeed. Um, you know, as, as it relates to what you were just saying um, with the with the guilt market, you know, so we're basically in this environment of where you know collateral is becoming increasingly scarce um with that has you know these kind of knock-on effects of onto the liquidity or illiquidity um and you know as as we've seen it can just show up anywhere um but in 
on you know where you would not expect them sometimes in like relatively liquid markets such as treasuries and guilds um, is sometimes where they would pop up and that's where they would be very problematic because if you have if you have volatility in you know G5 sovereign government bond markets uh, that is not good like I was saying recently how you know when when the the when the BOA BOE was stepping into uh, cap the long end of the guild curve, essentially doing temporary yield curve control. When that was happening, you know, a lot of th people were saying uh, thirty-year guild yields had a higher, like, five-day realized volatility than Bitcoin, and it was kind of like sure. a like a funny thing to say. But that's actually a significant statement because the reason that people don't own the reason that you know pension funds can't own Bitcoin is because it's too volatile. So what happens when that asset that they hold becomes more volatile realized? Then that of Bitcoin, they're going to have a fire sale on it, essentially. Um, exactly. Well, they they've got to think about that. But the but the reality is that governments are never going to uh, rule out uh, pension funds holding government bonds because they need them. Now, you know, if you if you start to look through the math of this thing, this is where it becomes actually quite scary, and this is where you you have to sit down because the story doesn't get better. Uh, it becomes a lot worse. Now, if you take the example of the UK gilt market. And the uh, the sort of disaster budget that uh, ex Prime Minister Truss uh, tried to put in place. Um, let's look at the the arithmetic behind that. At the time, or just prior to that budget, the UK tax take minus mandatory spending by the government, including defence, covered the UK interest bill on its debt 1.8 times. Okay. After the budget, which has now been reversed, it covered it 1.2 times. So the UK could still pay its interest rate bill. OK, now, what's that same number for the US? The answer is right now it's 0.8. If you look at the in other words, the US does not cover its interest bill uh, using tax revenues minus mandatory spending plus defense. That's a very worrying statistic. But as I say, it's going to get worse. The Congressional Budget Office predicts that in the next five years, that 0.8 ratio goes to 0.6. And it projects that it goes in the following five years out to 2032 to about 0.25. All right. So the U.S. has got to start borrowing aggressively just to cover its interest rate bill. The U.S., dare I say, is one of the cleanest shirts in the laundry. You start looking around at Europe, uh, it gets an awful lot worse. So this is a fiscal problem that is basically generational. And it's worldwide. It's because of aging demographics and the commitment to mandatory spending and the fact that as working populations shrink because of demographics, the tax take uh, basically falls with it. Now, there's another uh, there's another shoe to drop as well, because if you look at those congressional budget office estimates, they project the interest, the average interest rate on the debt that the U.S. is taking up is 2.1 percent. Right. Well, good luck there, because yields we know are now over 4%, uh, almost pretty much across the curve. Um, so in other words, that interest rate bill is going to double. In other words, those measures I just gave you should be halved. Uh, that's a very worrying figure. And therefore, the conclusion has got to be is that to avoid uh, yields going up, in other words, what I just mentioned, those term premia in the bond market uh, becoming positive again, central banks are going to have to come back with QE. Um, and all this talk about continued QT is, you know, is pie in the sky. It's just not going to happen. It creates illiquidity in financial markets. Um, and what's more, they need central banks to buy uh, more and more of this treasury paper.
We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Sounds to me like a certain country that I might or might not be currently in. Um, called Japan, uh, for which debt is government debt is astronomical. Uh, debt burden is getting worse. Um, you know the the amount. I think it's about a quarter of budget spent on the you know just interest expense alone. But you have extremely low um, borrowing costs, but they they cannot raise them um, for for many reasons for those fundamental reasons but also for those sort of uh, boe like liquidity reasons actually what I, what I was just saying to you uh before before was that what i kind of think ab- about when you know um looking at what happened with the bank of england and their temporary yield curve control at, of two weeks when they stepped in and did you know an unlimited bid for uh uk guilds at the long end um that from the from BOJ's perspective, from Bank of Japan's perspective, who has been doing yield curve control for six years, not two weeks, um, I think that they're looking at the UK and what was happening, and it validated or justified yield curve control. They were saying that's happening in the UK. The UK gilt market is blowing up because they didn't have measures in place like we do. We have yield curve control. We're capping the long end of the of the JGB curve. If not for that, the JGB market would have blown up far greater, far more volatile and and, and you know far longer ago. Um, and so thank God we have that. And therefore this is why we must you know at all costs leave this uh, policy in place place because look at what happened. Okay, this is why we must have so that's kind of my view. I don't know what your take is on 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 that. Hundred percent correct. I think that's absolutely what they're thinking. Um, Japan has thought about this very seriously. Um, yield curve control, I would say, on most measures, and in the eyes of most international politicians and policy experts, has been a great, great success. Uh, Janet Yellen, we know when she was at the Fed, was a great advocate of yield curve control. Lael Brynard, uh, vice chair of the Fed, is also a, a big proponent. Uh, it's in Japan. It's uh, it's obviously operating in eurozone uh, with spread control. It's happening now in the Bank of England, although they would like to deny that. And it will probably come to the US. It may be called something else like treasury buybacks, uh, increased bill issuance, uh, or whatever it may be, change in regulations. But effectively, it comes to the same thing. Central banks and treasuries are trying to control the yield curve. And, um, you know, the, the currency is a casualty of that, maybe, but that's the reality. Uh, Japan has thought about this a lot. Uh, if you look at the latest uh, Ministry of Finance projections for the Japanese budget, they go through very carefully the arithmetic and they compare Japan's situation with uh, other international countries. And they point out the fact uh, very clearly that actually Japan is by far and away not the worst country uh, in the world in terms of facing dire prospects in the fiscal space. Uh, there's many, many other countries that are in far, far worse shape. And that's the point I'm making. Uh, you know, the Japan, as it happens, and the US are not the are not the uh, dirtiest shirts in the laundry here. Um, that's what we've got to start remembering. Uh, there's a chart that uh, you can put up which shows the excess supply of collateral in the US 
uh, which uh, I think I put there, which is the second chart in the in the pack. But that you know that that very clearly shows um, the, um, the the fact that you've got a huge amount of coupon issuance. Uh, and this is uh, the projections. I should add are Congressional Budget Office projections of what of what's coming. So these are semi-official uh, estimates. And you can see what happened during the COVID crisis where coupon issuance of uh, notes and bonds in the US collapsed. Uh, the orange line on that chart is um, Federal Reserve liquidity injections. And the projections are that the Fed basically you know, falls away. But I, I hesitate to agree with that projection. I think the Fed will have to come back. But just look at that blue line, which is indicating the supply of coupon. And that is all about the huge mandatory spending demands uh, that are coming out uh, in all Western economies and Japan uh, over the next 10 years. It's a you know, eye-wateringly frightening number. And therefore, yield curve control has to come back. In other words, that means more liquidity being pumped back into markets. Right. Um, and so let me get to the pivot part in a minute. But let me just ask. Um, uh, so Jason from Twitter uh, is asking a, a question for you, uh, Mike. And basically, I don't know if you have any uh, take on uh, who the next uh, governor of the Bank of Japan will be once Governor Kuroda is out uh, in, in April um, and any implications from, you know, uh, whoever that may be, if you have a view on that. Um, and then a second one, which is probably more, more up your alley, but where would theoretically, where would the floating JGB 10 uh, tenure yield be in, in today, in his, his opinion, uh, in, in, your, in your opinion, essentially? Without yield curve control. Yeah, I'm Obviously. assuming, yeah, without yield curve control. Well, I think the, you know, the, the reality in, in uh, if you look at fixed income markets is that fixed income markets tend to move very closely. Uh, they gravitate together. Uh, and I would suggest that, uh, you know, you'd be looking at yields. I mean, we're, we're talking about yields of uh, what, circa 25 bips or so uh, in Japan. I would I would certainly add uh, 100 basis points to that if there was no yield curve control, may, maybe even more than that. I think the fact is that yield curve control has been has been very successful. And I would think there would be uh, every attempt not to uh, try and try and get out of it. Uh, now, I understand that the yen is an issue. Um, and it, it must be given the fall that we've had. But, you know, the two greatest anomalies in financial markets right now are the volatility in currencies and the volatility in the fixed income markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are the factors that people almost seem blind to. There's an awful lot going on here. And, uh, you know, our, our take on this year has really been one which said uh, U.S. policy, one's got, to, one's got to start with U.S. policy uh, in understanding the markets is basically about getting the Fed balance sheet down and getting the US dollar up. And I think the policy next year, if there is a tacit policy, it's the absolute reverse of that. It's getting the Fed balance sheet up and getting the US dollar down. So Asian currencies may get some respite out of this, but I think there are you know, potentially other shoes to drop. Okay, and then, so let me, before we run out of time, let me just ask you um, on this question, or, or, or this um, this question that I personally had, but you know, just watching, uh, you are from the you know your explanation video uh, on on Real Vision as well as the last time you were on Real Vision daily briefing with uh, with Maggie, but you put out a view out there saying that the move in dollar yen uh, on an annualized basis was something like between between March and August it was uh, annualized something like eighty percent or something something crazy right? right and you were saying that markets don't do that it governments do that uh, can you explain that what can you explain what your view is? Yes, or, I mean, I, it's a view, but it's a, a possible scenario, essentially. 
Yes, I think that they, you know, this is the sort of dog dog that didn't bark, if you like Sherlock Holmes stories. And I think the, you know, the, the point being is you can always look backwards and you can justify uh, why the yen collapsed because of Japan's yield curve control and whatever else you may you may throw in. But what you can't explain through that mechanism is the timing. And the timing is really very important. Um, and if you look at uh, basically what happened uh, at, the, at the beginning of this year, clearly the big or the material event was Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. And at that time, uh, and this may be, you know, sounds overly Machiavellian, but just hear me out here. What happened was the Chinese began intervening quite aggressively in their money markets and pumping liquidity into their money markets basically two days before the day of and two days after um, the invasion of, of Ukraine, as if, you know, one would surmise they knew pretty much what was happening and they wanted to stabilize their markets. Mm -hmm. Throughout the rest of this year, the Chinese have not been able to put any liquidity back into their markets at all. Um, they've been essentially under the cosh because the yuan has been under huge downward pressure. And I would surmise that that has been uh, uh, instrumented by the fall in the yen. Uh, the yen collapsed uh, or began to collapse a couple of weeks after the invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, it gathered momentum between early March and, uh, and uh, early May. It fell at an annualized rate of 82%. Uh, the Korean won followed and basically the yuan, the Chinese yuan, tried to resist that. The Chinese were very thorough in terms of taking lots of liquidity out of their financial markets uh, during a period when they're normally adding liquidity. They were very aggressive in withdrawing that. Uh, Chinese liquidity uh, cracked badly um, and the yuan basically stabilized for a while, but they couldn't hold it. And the more that the yen devalued, the more pressure it put on the Chinese currency. Uh, capital outflows began to accelerate, and ultimately, we know the story that the yuan fell. Now, through that period, uh, neither the Japanese Ministry of Finance nor the U.S. Treasury made any comments about the weakness of the yen. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a few mutterings maybe later on, but through the big falls, nobody said a word. Uh, there was no mention of currency manipulation. There was no mention of, uh, you know, trying to uh, steal a march by competitiveness or whatever it may be. Whereas 18 months earlier, when the Vietnamese dong had devalued by a far lesser amount, the U.S. Treasury were up in arms about currency manipulation. So I would suggest that on the basis of the dog that didn't bark, there was some manipulation of currency with an attempt to try and get the yuan destabilized. That is, I think, very important because basically it uh, it thwarts China's um, ability to create a rival to the US dollar in the Asian region. That has always been China's goal. Uh, I wrote a book about two years ago called Capital Wars, where we went through that. And I said that the main plank of China's policy was to stabilize the yuan with the idea of then creating a rival to the US dollar. Uh, China's ability to create a rival now has been put back at least a decade. Uh, what it may mean is that Chinese policy changes direction. It may move away uh, from um, domestic growth and it may be forced into a policy whereby it has to devalue the yuan even more. So I would say that now we've gone through seven, the chances of hitting 10 are probably even greater. And that may put a significant on dollar uh, yuan, USD CNY 10. Yeah. Okay. And that may put uh, a big deflationary hit onto the world economy. And that's the thing that I think we've got to start thinking about in the future. Now, what's the historic evidence of that? Just go back and look at the 1930s. 
what you've got are a lot of parallels in the 1930s to what's happening now. Uh, and among those things are clearly autarkic or more autarkic economies. In other words, free trade has got barriers around it. Uh, there's been scrambles for commodities. There's geopolitical events. Uh, and there are huge currency devaluations and appreciations. Currency volatility uh, just was all over the place in the 1930s. And that's the world I think we're moving into right now. Okay, so that's an extremely, extremely interesting view. So let me just ask you this then. Okay, so let's say that that is the case that that the the yen weakness has been um, at the direct hands of uh, both the Ministry of Finance in Japan and the United States Tre Treasury working in tandem, uh, and to do so in order to uh, to co to combat the yuan or otherwise working in tandem. Uh, how w would you therefore explain? something like a yen intervention with the Ministry of Finance smacking down dollar yen, five big figures in 20 minutes. Uh, does that fit within that sort of, you know, kind of coordinated backdoor planning or? Well, I think central banks generally don't like currencies of losing control of currencies. And I think if you see very rapid devaluations, they will try and stop that. But generally, they've been more equivocal about the level of their currencies. I think that's fair. And I, I would suggest that what the Ministry of Finance was trying to do then was to stop uh, the, or stop halt the risk of a runaway uh, yen dollar exchange rate. Uh, they're probably comfortable with holding it where it is now or there or thereabouts. And they were effectively drawing a line in the sand. They, they had basically won the day because the, the Chinese yuan had, uh, had basically traded through seven. So, so essentially the, the initial like 15 or so percent move up from March that was um, coordinated and, and sort of managed. But then thereafter, you know, the latest sort of, we'll call it 10, 10 15% up, that was maybe doing it, uh, you know, having it happen too much. And so therefore that yeah. they, that was allowed. And, and I would kind of agree with you that it was allowed because of the deafening silence out of the G5 and G20 um, meeting, as well as from the U.S. Treasury, who were basically saying, yes, we acknowledge that Japan did that and we're fine with it. Um, which is kind of, to me, is kind of a, not necessarily a green light, but like a wink, wink, nod, nod, like, yeah, go ahead, cap, you know, uh, a runaway uh, dollar yen if, if you need to um, within our kind of broader efforts. Yeah, you, the U.S. dollar has, has been weaponized. It's as straightforward as that. Right. Um, right. Okay. Uh, look, um, Michael, uh, I wish we had more time. Because um, I could talk to you for about this, but uh, we have to get you back on onto Real Vision uh, to discuss this more in depth. But you know, basically, at the end of the day, just to sort of sum things up, you know, first of all, uh, on Real Vision Essential, there's a video from uh, I think it's uh, August 15th or so, where uh, Mike is talking to Ash, and they break down everything about his uh, framework and how cross-border capital works and analyzes markets. It's videos called Everything You Need to Know About Liquidity. I just tweeted about it as well, so make sure you check that out. But at the end of the end of the day, you know the framework is that the world works and, and asset markets and, and all that um, are essentially moving and and are priced off of uh, or or driven by these enormous flows of capital of existing debt uh, that need to be rolled over and the capacity and ability to do that, um, and with you know a basically a shortage of collateral. Um, and sort of, you know, volatility and illiquidity, um, you're going to have some massive problems coming up such that you're going to have a potential central bank uh, or a Fed pivot or a Fed pause, if you will, in um, 
in their tightening uh, regime that they're currently doing uh, sometime around, was it Q1, Mike, uh, or next year, Q1, Q2, somewhere around there? Yeah, my, my estimate's been by Q1, there'll be, uh, there'll be a move of more liquidity back into markets. And that increase in liquidity is clearly going to be good for longer duration assets. And as I said before, the thing to watch are cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, that's not not investment advice. It's just basically looking at them as a barometer. They're hugely liquidity sensitive. If there is illiquidity, they go down. Uh, they cascade down, as we know. If there's more liquidity, they will just trend upwards. So, you know, be a trend follower in these in these markets. Right. So, yeah, if you want if you want to go out on the risk, you know, all the way out on the risk uh, curve, especially given the last week of the sell off. Um, you know, if you want to participate in this sort of reversals and an upside in risk, uh, come this pivot that will come as a result of uh, things breaking in illiquidity in treasury markets, uh, going long crypto or sort of zero cash flow NASDAQ stocks um, would be the play to in which to, to do that. Obviously not trading advice, just the way that things were basically the last time that this uh, sort of setup um, had, had occurred. Um, do I have that more or less correct, Mike? Completely correct. 100%. Amazing. Uh, look, thank you so much. I definitely need to get you back on again, and we'll talk more in depth about, um, you know, BOJ, uh, the U.S. Treasury and currencies, um, and and cross, cross broader and cro no pun tidy, cross broader and cross asset flows and all that. But uh, to everyone else out there, thank you for your questions. Thank you for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, we are off tomorrow for a U.S. holiday. Um, so everyone have a great weekend and we will see you on Monday. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.